0: Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. If you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. In the last decade of the Russian Empire, Russian composers like Alexander Skorabin, Sergei Rachmaninoff, and Nikolai Metner looked to music as a means to bring unity to the Russian society and form the basis for a Russian national identity. What was this search for a Russian Orpheus all about? And what role did the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche play in inspiring it? How did music serve as a way to address the anxieties of Russian modernity? I turn to Rebecca Mitchell to talk about her fascinating book, Nietzsche's Orphans, Music, Metaphysics, and the Twilight of the Russian Empire for some answers. Rebecca Mitchell is an assistant professor of history at Middlebury College, where she specializes in Russian cultural history at the end of the Russian Empire. She teaches a wide range of courses on the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, comparative communism, and the intersections between music and power in history. She's the author of Nietzsche's Orphans, Music, Metaphysics, and the Twilight of the Russian Empire, published by Yale University Press. Rebecca won the W. Bruce Lincoln Book Prize for Nietzsche's Orphans in 2016. Here's Rebecca Mitchell. So your book, Nietzsche's Orphans, is a fascinating and complex look at music as a source of shared Russian identity and social unity in the last years of the Russian empire. So what drew you?
1: Well, my original background was actually in music. I was doing a Bachelor of Music degree and I became very interested in the music of the composer Alexander Skryabin. I happened to come across a CD recording of Vladimir Horowitz playing his music. And I just became really fascinated with him as an individual. And so I decided to try and find out a little bit more about his life. At that point in time, I didn't know much of anything about Russian culture more broadly. And the things that I found out really fascinated me. Uh, For instance, in reading one of his biographies, I discovered that he believed that he was God, which really intrigued me. And and he also thought that through his music, he would bring about the end of the universe, which were all really uh, crazy ideas. And... So I started reading a little bit more about Russian history and Russian culture, and one of the things then that really struck me was that, on the one hand, you know, yes, Skryabin was a particularly extreme, shall we say, example of certain tendencies, but he was far from alone. Um, in some of the goals that he had more broadly. And so I became increasingly interested not in just Skryabin as an individual, but this larger cultural context that he was coming out of. And that eventually led me um, to look into the social connections and the broader cultural world. I became familiar with some of the people that he was friends with, like Vyacheslav Ivanov and others. And it really just opened up this whole world for me.
0: Oh wow, that's that's quite fascinating um that he had this very eccentric, almost Messiah god complex yes. um and apocalyptism, which I think I might actually return to later. But first, why don't you talk a bit about the growing power of music in Russian culture towards the end and the nineteenth century to beginning of the twentieth century? And what attracted Russian intellectuals to begin to think about it as an object for a philosophical contemplation?
1: So The um, history of classical music and music education in Russia really took off in the mid to late 19th century with the founding of conservatories and so on. But what I discovered when I was doing a lot of research in the time period is that particularly from about 1903 onward, you see an upsurge in the amount that music is just being talked about, not just in specialist music periodicals, but in cultural commentaries more generally. And what it seems to be connected with is a rejection of some of these early, more positivist interpretations of reality. So people are becoming um, discontent with materialist conceptions of the world and looking for new ways to really conceive of themselves and their place in society. It also is tied in very clearly with spiritual striving and with a sense that traditional orthodox belief in particular is not sufficient. And they're looking for new forms of um, spiritual experience.
0: So would you say that this is, um, I mean, it sounds like to me that there's a bit of a return to romanticism you know perhaps of the the mid from the mid century and and trying to find so so i i guess my question would be then is w- what are these people looking for in this spiritual exercise and philosophical exercise and, and a movement into the more romantic or or even one may say irrational
1: i think to a certain extent it depends which individuals you're looking at Some of them are clearly looking for personal spiritual meaning and fulfillment. Um, One of the other things that draws people to music at this time in particular is this um, sense of crisis in terms of understanding what it means to be Russian. And I think this is partly a reflection of earlier romantic ideals. Herder, for instance, had made the argument that the true spirit of every folk was embodied in folk music. And there's a sense that music is a way of embodying Russianness, but this goes hand in hand with a rejection of the more practical ways that Russianness had been depicted in music before. So an actual rejection of some of these uh, forms that the Mighty Five in particular use, like uh, citing folk melodies. And they're, they're looking for a more metaphysical way of defining what it means to be Russian. And then the other aspect that seems to go along with this is a very strong sense of the division between educated society and the common people. And music is actually often cited as a way of overcoming that divide, so that um, you can basically reach out to the masses. Music is a great form of Education and outreach because, you know, anyone can come and listen to music and anyone can participate in choral song, which is also envisioned as this great unifying act that everyone can participate in. You don't have to be able to read in order to participate in mass song. You don't need any education per se to listen to music and get a certain experience from it. So I think that's another aspect that's really central at this point in time.
0: Hmm, that's really interesting because even like choral song, it, on a physical level, it brings people a group together in a mass. So there's kind of a collective kind of convergence there as well.
1: Yeah. And they're very interested in this experiential aspect of music, that it's something that you experience not just as an indiv- individual, but part of a larger group, whether that's in performing in a choir or as an audience, you're all having the same sort of emotional experience, which creates a certain kind of community.
0: And and is this along the lines of what you mean by the concept of a um, musical metaphysics?
1: So the term musical metaphysics I came up with to try and describe the particular conjunction of ideas that are connected with music at this point in time. And some of them are definitely carryovers from romantic ideals. But there's also a very strong contemporary aspect. So the other thing that's going on that I wanted to highlight is, first of all, a a fear or a concern that Russia as a country is disunified and music is a potential form of unity. But then there's also this idea that with the advances of modernity, the very temporal experience that people have has been changing. And music is interesting because it actually is basically something that you experience in time it's um, more temporal than any other art form and so there's this idea that since music is so connected with time maybe through music you can actually affect or transform these uh, challenges of modernity itself which is another really important aspect um, that i try to bring under this concept of musical metaphysics
0: so is it is the it concept of if is the issue with time a way to try to on the one hand slow down time and on the other perhaps even put everyone listening to the music on the same timeline uh, occupying the same temporal space I should say
1: Yeah I think that the idea of everyone occupying the same temporal space that is separate from the mundane experience of daily life is a key aspect to it And then the other aspect is, of course, the question of whether you're envisioning this ideal time as something that is future oriented or something that is past oriented. And there's a little bit of uh, difference in the discourse about uh, where the focus is on that.
0: Now, you label your historical characters uh, Nietzsche's orphans. So what role did Nietzsche's thought play and and what are some of the ways that thought was translated into a Russian context?
1: So one of the things I noticed it when I was doing a lot of reading in the sources was that Nietzsche was a constant presence, either cited or often unsighted, but still very much there. Um, and the aspect of Nietzsche that was always present was basically early Nietzschean thought, so specifically the birth of tragedy, in which he has this whole idea about how music is the embodiment of the primal unity underlying reality itself, um, which is an idea that he derives from uh, Schopenhauer before him. But this really, really inspired um, a lot of Russians who were concerned about what they perceived to be the danger of disintegration of Russian society at the time. So this idea of unity is a constant refrain. Um, At the same time that they're taking this aspect of Nietzsche and really you know, emphasizing it wholeheartedly. Uh, They even claim, for instance, that Nietzsche is a prophet who has, you know, envisioned the the right answer for society. But they'll always say, you know, except that he made one small mistake, and that is that he didn't believe in God. And, you know, as long as you take that part of Nietzsche out, then, you know, everything else just makes sense, which um, it's a little bit tricky, of course, how you remove that aspect from Nietzsche himself. But... The idea becomes that it's actually one of the spaces in which Russian society, Russian spirituality can come in and compensate for Nietzsche's shortcomings through their embodiment of spirituality in particular.
0: You, you know, it's interesting. Two things I, I'm kind of picking up in what you've been saying is, on the one hand, there is this almost apocalyptic uh, vision but on the other hand, and and apocalyptic in a sense of disintegration, and then on the other, there's this search for a savior uh, to bring the unity or to prevent that apocalyptic destruction, or maybe even a a, spirit, a rebirth of society as unified. Do, do you all? Did you also get a sense of that working in this, the discourses?
1: Yeah, quite strongly. I mean, there's very clearly the sense that. If you're believing that music is this unifying force, someone is still creating that music that everyone is experiencing and listening to. And there's a little bit of discussion that maybe someday, uh, with the assistance of basically your educated elites who are supposed to teach the people um, the proper enjoyment of music, maybe someday you can create a true collective opera, for instance, that will be created by the people themselves. Um, But in the meantime, of course, the way that you actually achieve this unity is through the music of a specific individual. And there is a sense that the music that's been written before might provide inspiration, but it's not sufficient to the task at hand. And this is where you have uh, what I talk about as a search for a contemporary Orpheus, so a Russian composer who might actually be able, through his music, to bring um, all of these threads together and give people that experience that it's argued that they need.
0: Now you said in in your book is is a lot of it is about this search for a Russian identity, but there there I see at least two things that you note that complicate this search. First off is is the fact that. A lot of this philosophical search is through the importation of foreign models, particularly German thought, Nietzsche, etc. Uh, and then there, of course, is the, the tension between Russischi, which is the identity as a, a subject of the Russian empire, and Rusky, which is the ethnic term for being Russian. So what was the search for Russian identity for some of these composers like Skraben and Rachmaninoff and, and Mentor?
1: I guess, first of all, in terms of this issue of the danger of foreign models, um, the members of educated society that I look at feel this very strongly. It's actually why I refer to them as Nietzsche's orphans, because on the one hand, they're very aware that they're borrowing these models. And it's why they're so obsessed then with finding someone who can actually give it Russian form in particular and it it's music is a fascinating space to talk about questions of russian identity in particular because not everyone who's trained in the conservatories is of ethnic russian background as james luffler has shown in his book that came out a few years ago there's a very strong jewish um population that uh, is also involved in musical practice, but they all, they still see themselves as Russian in some way, at the same time that there's this idea that music is, of course, supposed to embody certain national or folk characteristics. And so there's this inter- inherent tension that comes out, I think, particularly strongly in the composers that I look at with uh, Nikolai Metner, who, he's born in Moscow you know, he's raised there, he studies at the Moscow Conservatory, but he's of Baltic German descent. And so his family speaks both German and Russian. And he's very aware of himself as an individual who respects and admires what he considers to be the the German traditions of the past, particularly musical traditions, philosophical traditions, um, an emphasis on form and structure. But at the same time, there are aspects that he feels are lacking in that German part of his identity that he thinks he can bring in because of his status as someone who's both German and Russian at the same time, and of course the. Big example here is he thinks that Russians have a more active and alive sense of spirituality in the modern age. And this, you know, on the one hand, it seems possible that music could provide a bridge, a way of creating a Rasiski identity without devolving merely into specific national schools, or that maybe there could be an overarching Russian imperial musical identity that could incorporate different schools, both the Jewish National School, the Russian National School, maybe Ukrainian National School. It seems like that's possible, but as we move forward, particularly with the outbreak of war in 1914 and this strong upsurge in ethnic nationalism, that conception of an imperial Russian identity really loses um, a lot of its viability. and that's felt very strongly in the personal experiences of someone like Nikolai Metner, who suddenly finds himself being um, attacked as a German, even though, you know he self defines as Russian in terms of his identity and citizenship.
0: Right, right. All of a sudden those ethnic markers become sig- imbued with significance and danger. Why don't we just listen to uh, some music and have you have you comment on it? So um, this is Rachmaninoff's uh, Piano Concerto Number Two. Question then is so what does this music represent?
1: It's it's a really interesting question. One of the fascinating things about music is, of course, it can represent different things for different people. This particular musical example is a great example of how one particular individual who's very involved in um, the worldview I look at, Marietta Tishiginyan uh, interprets the music of Sergei Rachmaninoff. She explicitly talks about this concerto as embodying the true Russian soul of the people uh, of Russia in the contemporary world. So both their sort of spirituality, their struggle, and their the importance of protecting their individual identity. She talks a lot about lichnost and how Rachmaninoff's music is very human. So on the one hand... It's connected with God, but it's also an individual human voice, which is what she believes Russia really needs at this juncture.
0: That, that's interesting that you have this interplay then between this desire for some kind of unity, but the preservation of the individual, not only here and here, I'm thinking not only in the music, but also the composer as the, the one who's supposed to compose that music to bring unity.
1: Yeah, and it's um, partly her response to what some of the other members of educated society are arguing about other composers. So when she claims that Rachmaninoff is protecting the, individual, the individuality of Russians, she's also critiquing someone like Alexander Skryabin, who she believes is so involved in this sort of collective vision that he's lost sight of the individual.
0: And what about this aspect of of the role of women in these intellectual and artistic circles? You know, as you point out, they, they form these communities in and of themselves, but they overlap and people move in and out of them and pass through them. So what role and influence did women have in this intellectual environment?
1: You know, this was a question when I first asked myself. It seemed like they were very absent when I was reading the writings in the journals of the time and the sources at first. And this is because, of course, most of the published philosophical reflections on music are written by men. All of the composers who are claimed as possible Orphic figures are men as well. That's very clear. But then when I started delving more into the actual social circles in which these ideas were spread... I became aware that women actually played very central roles. So Marietta Shaginyan is one example of this. She um, is very involved with holding up Rachmaninoff as the true Russian Orpheus of the modern age to the point that she actually um, is trying to persuade him to accept her her philosophical interpretation of his importance even when he is rejecting it so she's ascribing certain meanings to him that he is not comfortable with and then you you see women very active in other circles as well um margarita marozova is an example of um someone who hosts numerous musical evenings in her own house uh she has personal connections with a number of composers she herself uh, studied piano uh, extensively, first with Alexander Skriabin and then with Nikolai Metner. And she provides this space in which a lot of these ideas are discussed and sort of transmitted. And then you also have, of course, uh, the role of the woman as muse. This is something that you see very often. So there's the idea that women cannot be creative in the same way that men can be. And this is an idea that you get actually both from men and women in this milieu. But at the same time, women are supposed to play certain roles in performing music. This is a space they can be active, encouraging composers to have these great lofty spiritual ideals through their relationships with them. And so they're actually very present when you start looking at the the social realm
0: now you've you've mentioned this a little bit so far, but you, you devote an entire chapter on the fact that musical metaphysics begins to disintegrate after the outbreak of world war one so So what happens with the war?
1: so there are a few things that start happening. I think it's fair to say that first of all, a lot of your people who have been developing these ideas about music in sort of a very abstract sense are quite appalled by the the real experience of war. Um, it doesn't fit with this metaphysical interpretation that they've they've had before. So some of them are simply disillusioned on that level. It seems like, you know, maybe music doesn't have any real power in the physical world after all. You also have a number of individual developments that happen so in 1915 for instance alexander skriabin uh, who's the composer that really is most often cited as a potential orphic figure he dies very unexpectedly from blood poisoning and it's it's this very strange death he basically had an infected cut on his lip that he eventually he gets blood poisoning from and dies very quickly which is seen by his admirers as a sign of something. the The question, of course, is: Is this a sign of you know the Messiah died, but we have to continue his mission? Or, um, as starts to be interpreted more and more often, is this a sign that Scriabin himself was transgressing against some higher power in what he was suggesting through his music? And this starts shifting into a critique of russian culture and society itself that maybe russia has gone astray and lost its its genuine path so there's that aspect with the case of someone like metner of course uh, for him the problematic is that he starts being viewed more and more as someone who is ethnically german and who therefore almost by definition can't fulfill this um, metaphysical calling. And this has really negative uh, implications for him as well. He sinks into a depression as someone who's really caught between two worlds. And then in the case of Rachmaninoff as well, you have the composer himself not really creating the kind of music that his followers were hoping for. He does a lot of uh, charity concerts, that sort of thing. Um, But a lot of the compositions that he writes are imbued with a very Mm. pessimistic air. There's a set of etudes that um, use as one of the recurring citations in the the D.S.A. Iré chant for the dead. And this is seen as sort of the the death of any sense that his music could have a positive uh, unifying impulse.
0: And, and, and what happens with the revolution? What, what happens to the music, thinking about music, but also the, some of these composers?
1: So after 1917, the, the community that I was looking at is really shattered. Some of them um, stay in Russia. Some of them try to adapt to the new Soviet state. Others, like Rachmaninoff, leave very quickly after. So you have this actual physical displacement of the communities. But you also have... A number of different directions that these ideas develop in, and so I, I talk about three different offshoots of musical metaphysics after 1917. On the one hand, in the Soviet Union itself, it's not like these ideas just disappear. They sort of they feed into uh, Soviet utopianism, and you know they remove the more spiritualized aspect, but you don't have to change that much about musical metaphysics for it to fit into this idea of constructing the new Soviet man, for instance. And so we see that tendency happening in the early Soviet period in particular. Another shift that you see um, is in this realm of temporality. So um, I talked a little bit about how there's this idea that You can have this musical experience that takes you out of day-to-day existence and sort of lifts you to a higher realm. Um, And that could be forward-focused or backward-focused. After 1917, for a lot of people who were opposed to the Bolshevik Revolution, they start talking about music still very much in the same terms except for that temporal space that they're focused on and that really shifts into a realm of an idealized memory so instead of envisioning this future better world or better russian identity or uh, transformed reality they focus instead on you know remembering this idealized past which is a really interesting development and then finally, you also have people who just express very complete and utter disillusion with all of these ideas that they had espoused um, before 1917.
0: Going back to the religiosity, and he- here too, you know, the the easy transformation, as you say, from um, into a-, a Soviet utopianism, The also the religious almost symbolism of the prophet, even almost Virgin Mary figures, uh, trying to facilitate prophets. People who, after you know, Skrabin dies, you have this sense of do we continue on his teachings? Um, So, so can you talk a bit more about the place of religiosity, particularly since you said earlier that there is a disillusionment with the with the formal church? So, what role did religiosity play in all of this?
1: Well, I think. You know, whether you call it religiosity or spirituality, there's a very strong sense that there's something lacking, some spiritual need that is not being met in the current age. And this is often laid at the feet of an overly rational society, an overly rational approach to the world, which is actually sometimes then also associated with modernity. And with the experiences, the developments, the technological innovations of modernity. There's this idea that the true human essence and the sort of higher purpose has been lost. And music provides a way for people to engage with or get access to this higher realm. And it's, it's interesting and it's useful because unlike any particular um, actual religious belief, you don't have to follow certain rituals or certain practices. It's it's open to basically anyone who is willing to um, use music as a way of um, achieving some kind of higher experience, which um, in this case tends to be defined in, in spiritual terms. And so it's, I think, serving in some ways as a more universalized way of arguing for the importance of the non-material, the non-physical in human existence.
0: And finally, the intellectual interrogation of music in this period, and you've pointed this out already, it serves as a way of dealing with the rapid changes and anxieties generated by modernity. And considering that this year is the centennial of the Russian Revolution, how would you place your story in the general feeling and experience of crisis towards the the latter part of the Russian Empire?
1: I think it's very intimately tied in. I mean, one of the reasons you have so much discourse about music in particular, outside of specifically music circles, is that people are anxious. People are concerned about the future. They're searching for ways to either create a better future or create a more unified society. And music, because of its actual specific qualities, the fact that When you experience it, you experience it as part of a community. Um, If you sing choral music, you can sing it as part of of a unified whole. Um, It seems to be potentially offering um, solutions to some of these problems. Of course, that ultimately is not the case. And um, looking at musical metaphysics as this worldview, it's really interesting to see how strains like... um, ethnic nationalism and such really serve to undermine this search, which I think is very, very telling of what's going on in the Russian empire more broadly.
0: That was Rebecca Mitchell, assistant professor of history at Middlebury College, where she specializes in Russian cultural history at the end of the Russian empire. She's the author of Nietzsche's Orphans, Music, Metaphysics, and the Twilight of the Russian Empire, published by Yale University Press. Rebecca won the W. Bruce Lincoln Book Prize for Nietzsche's Orphans in 2016. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.